0: This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Our focus, COVID-19, and a pandemic that has upended every aspect of our lives for more than a year. By the numbers, nearly 165 million cases worldwide, a global death toll that has exceeded 3.4 million. And here in the US, close to 590,000 Americans who have died from this disease. Dr. Ashish Jha is one of the nation's leading public health experts. And our conversation is just ahead. He makes the following observation about the road ahead.
1: The the scars from this past year are going to be with us for many, many, many years. And, you know it just was such a collectively awful, awful year that I do not see, I mean, we'll fight about, you know, specific things as we always do in our country, but I think the idea that the nation will you know, in two, three years just say, ah thank God that's over, let's go back to completely ignoring, it's too, it's hard for me to get there, I I think this is a pretty transformative thing Uh, there's a huge window of opportunity here for doing things better, being better prepared and I'm hopeful that we will take that opportunity and get our country better prepared for future crises like this.
0: More of our conversation with Dr. Jha, who serves as the Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, it's just ahead. But first, some background. It was November 1st, 2005, nearly 16 years ago, when President George W. Bush offered this warning about a potential global pandemic. Leaders at every
1: level of government have a responsibility to confront dangers before they appear and engage the American people on the best course of action. It is vital that our nation discuss and address the threat of pandemic flu now. There is no pandemic flu in our country or in the world at this time. But if we wait for a pandemic to appear, it will be too late to prepare. And one day, many lives could be needlessly lost because we failed to act today. By preparing now, we can give our citizens some peace of mind, knowing that our nation is ready to act at the first sign of danger. And that we have the plans in place to prevent and, if necessary, withstand an influenza pandemic. Thank you for coming today to let me outline my strategy. Thank the United States Congress for considering this measure. May God bless you all.
0: That was President George W. Bush in 2005. Fast forward to January 22nd of 2019 with the first reports of a new virus strain that originated from Wuhan, China. This is how the story broke on ABC's Good Morning America. Now to growing concerns about the deadly coronavirus officially hitting the U.S. Here's what we know. A Washington state resident fell ill after returning from Wuhan, China, where the outbreak began. Officials now say more than 400 people have been sickened and nine people have died. Sixteen months later, more than 60 percent of adult Americans have received at least one vaccine. The U.S. has begun to bend the curve in terms of cases, and our nation is slowly beginning to reopen. Dr. Jha puts the last year and a half into perspective, but we began our conversation by asking about his own story. He was born in India with family still living there. And that is a nation that continues to reel from the ravages of this pandemic.
1: Yeah, well, thank you. And and yes, I do still have family, cousins, aunts, uncles, and uh, things are really bad. Um, and what's interesting is that what the statistics don't really capture is just how widespread the infection and, and uh, deaths are across the country. So, what happened? Why did India get to this position? Um, a couple of things. I mean, first was India had its first wave last spring summer as many countries did and lifted the kind of national shutdowns. Things got better and they continued getting better. And and to all of us our surprise a little bit December, January were actually really good months with very low case numbers across the country. And so in February, when cases started rising, and we can talk about why I think cases started rising in a second, but as cases started rising, there was a sense of, no, no, India has beaten COVID. That was the big phrase and a complacency that set in. And by March, it was very clear that infection numbers were really rising quite rapidly across the country. And, uh, uh, and I think the major drivers have been these variants uh, B117, the variant from the UK. Uh, there are clearly some homegrown uh, variants in India, B1617. Um, the what they often call the double mutant or the Indian variant. A- and those really started taking off and driving in the infections. And, and for much of March and April, uh, the Indian government was in denial. They basically kept saying it can't be real. It's not happening. Uh, these are small numbers. And what unfortunately happened was that not only was kind of India going about its daily business and not putting in any kind of precautions at all, but in fact, there were these very, very large gatherings or something called the Kum Mela, which is a large religious gathering that brings Tens of millions of people from around the country uh, to to a single city and a single site uh, that proceeded, despite the fact that case numbers were rising. So it was a combination of variance and just neglect and denial that, by mid to late April, was just impossible to deny anymore. And now. Across the nation, we're seeing very, very high infection rates. Some evidence recently that it, maybe that's peaked and started to turn down. Uh, but my best estimation is that probably between twenty and thirty thousand Indians are dying every single day of this virus. Uh, way, way more than the official estimates, and the healthcare system is under dire straits. So difficult, difficult situation.
0: You have answered part of my question: how India reached this point. But let me just follow up: why? Why was there either neglect or denial? by officials, by health officials and the government in that country?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a great question. We've seen this in lots of places, including at times in our own nation, right, where uh, things start getting bad and and political leaders who are in charge uh, like to be able to say, no, no, I've got this all under control and I don't want to have, we don't need to do anything. So there's a kind of a broader question of why don't political leaders respond more quickly and effectively uh, to these things. There really had become this narrative, and narratives are very hard to dispel, but this very strong narrative that India somehow had managed to defy this virus even if no other country in the world had and it really fed into a you know this sense that like maybe we 're different, maybe we 're special, maybe maybe India can really handle this. of course, the virus has shown us there 's nobody who 's special everybody 's equally at risk or everybody is at substantial risk and so It's hard to know exactly why the denial lasted as long as it did. Uh, Even if the Indian government had acted two or three weeks earlier, it would have made an enormous difference in terms of preventing infections and deaths.
0: How is your family doing today
1: in India? Uh, Well, I have a lot of people I I know who have gotten very sick, including people I know who have died. Luckily, no one that I'm uh, very close to has passed away, but several people have gotten very, very sick and, and thankfully have recovered.
0: Your advice to Indian health officials is what?
1: You know, we, we know the game plan for how to manage this pandemic at this point, right? We've got pretty good evidence of how do you stop the spread, which is mask wearing, avoiding large indoor gatherings, uh, washing hands. Uh, we know what you need to, do to take care of people, hospital beds, oxygen supplies, uh, some basic medicines. And then we know how to end this pandemic or certainly bring it to a close, and that's vaccines. And India needs to be pushing on every one of those things. Things are very dire, and and India needs a, a three-pronged strategy that deals with prevention of infection, uh, taking care of the sick, and vaccinating as quickly as possible.
0: Dr. Jha, let's go back to the winter of 2019, January, February. When did you first hear about COVID-19 What were your initial concerns, and what questions did you have back then?
1: Yeah, so I heard about this novel coronavirus probably, and again, the dates are hard to remember, but it was sometime mid-January, and... You know, initially, I don't know how concerned I was. I thought that I I didn't necessarily think it was going to become a global pandemic uh, immediately. Uh, I wish I I had. I didn't. I thought, well, we'll see what happens. It looks like it's it's pretty tightly confined in Wuhan. But I would say sort of certainly by the second half of January, uh, you know, January 23rd, 24th, something in that range, it started becoming clear to me that this virus had spread to many countries and was here in the United States and that this was going to be a global problem. You know, the, the big, uh, there have been lots of uh, misunderstandings of how this was all going to play out. I wrote a piece at the end of January, I wrote around the 28th, 29th of January of 2020 in which I <laughs> forecasted what I thought the world, how it was all going to play out. And I uh, said that uh, that I was really worried about this becoming a global pandemic. I was really about, worried about the world. But then, and this is a part where you have to promise not to laugh at me, um, I said I was not worried about the United States. I thought America was going to do really well in the pandemic, and, and American people were going to uh, get through this without uh, too much cause for concern. And, you know as you might imagine having written that I have spent just an enormous amount of time thinking what did I get wrong and what I got wrong was I overestimated uh, how prepared our public health infrastructure was for, for managing it um, and I underestimated issues of social cohesion political governance uh, things that I largely thought uh, would come together and hold the country in place so my concerns really got uh in about the world i would say you know mid to late january and then concerns about the u.s came a few weeks after that
0: so as the dean of the school of public health at brown university what are the lessons and how do you apply them to a future potential pandemic
1: yeah. I mean, there, there are three or four kind of big lessons that we get from the last year, right? So one is certainly that you need uh, investments in basic infrastructure, that you need to have laboratory capacity. You need to be able to build up testing infrastructure very, very quickly. We didn't have that. Um, so there's a set of investments that we need to make on, uh, on stuff. There is a set of investments we need to have in people. We had no public health workforce um, that even as testing became widely available, we couldn't, do, we couldn't do contact tracing. We just didn't have the staff. So we're going to have to really think about what kind of public health workforce do we want on reserve, ready to go in health crises, and make those investments. Um, the, the third big lesson is the issue around information, communication, misinformation. And, and this really gets at, at a little bit around kind of governance issues as well. What we saw throughout the whole pandemic, one of my biggest surprises is the sheer amount of misinformation and disinformation that has been spread. And, and the problem with misinformation is, is that it undercuts people's willingness to do the things that will help them stay protected and help their communities stay protected. And so if you have an, a, a misinformation campaign that undermines the use of masks, a lot of people won't wear masks. And if they don't wear masks, they'll spread the disease and get infected. So, so there is That really needs addressing as well and then maybe the two more quick things one let's talk about a real success story Um, despite these challenges clearly a lesson of last year is that when the scientific community comes together to try to solve a big problem it can do it can be incredibly successful I mean my gosh having all of these vaccines in such short order is uh, just scientific uh, success like nothing I've seen in my life and last point is that in all of these things we have to keep a global perspective because uh, we may live in the united states but this is a global pandemic and so we have seen the effects of the global challenges by seeing the arrival of variants here the the need for a global vaccination strategy so this is not something america can go alone that we really do need to have a very global focus if we're going to solve major global health crises
0: And yet when you came to the realization, the magnitude of this pandemic, could you have imagined that within a year we would have a number of vaccines?
1: No, you know, if we were talking last, let's say, February, um, I would have I would have neither predicted that nearly 600,000 Americans would have died, nor would I have predicted that we would have, you know, three authorized vaccines and maybe more coming uh, within within 10 months of that time period, right? So on, uh, both our public health response, I think, surprised me on the downside, but the scientific response on the vaccines and their production definitely pleasantly surprised me on the upside.
0: Let's talk about the public, because as we all know, this has impacted every single American in one way or the other. Your inability to travel, children who have school at home and via Zoom instead of in the classroom, your inability to see loved ones, perhaps a loved one suffered COVID-19 or died from coronavirus. So how would you assess the public's reaction to this pandemic and, again, lessons that we can apply for the future?
1: Yeah. I mean, the suffering has been really borne quite widely by the American people, not equally. And again, there's certain communities, certain uh, groups of individuals who've certainly suffered a lot more than others. Um, And and I'm just to be very specific, obviously, communities of color, essential workers, uh, a lot of people who have been, uh, who've really borne the brunt of this. Uh, But it has affected all of us. And, um, and it's nothing like, you know, we've none of us have experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. I mean, just the way that it has flattened our society and dominated every conversation over the last 15 months. Um, I, my sense is, talking to just not only my own family and friends, but people around the country, is that um, people are exhausted. People um, need a break from this, they need to begin to get their lives back, which I think is coming, especially if we can keep vaccinating more people. Um, But I also, this sense that we cannot do this again, that there will be future outbreaks and pandemics, and we need a strategy that does not leave us this vulnerable um, and does not leave us basically uh, disrupted and and kind of our lives turned upside down. Uh, By the way, I do think that's possible. I do think there will be future pandemics. I think we can respond far more effectively. But the public needs to have confidence that we're going to make the investments uh, to get there.
0: You may know Dr. Michael Sag. He is a leading infectious disease expert, University of Alabama at Birmingham. And he said that we will be living with COVID-19 in one form or another for the next five to eight years. But he did say we can do so by managing it. How would you address management of COVID-19 if, in fact, that is the case?
1: yeah absolutely i I agree with Dr. Sag. I think we're going to have to deal with covid nineteen for a long time i don 't know if it's five or ten years or uh, but it'll be around because we're not going to eradicate the virus. to me, the question really is does the virus need to continue to dominate our lives and the answer is no, like that I think will go away so um, if we can if we can keep going on vaccinations we're about 60% of adults right now but if we get that number into the 70s and 80s the virus levels in the community will get very very low the other way that, so that's one part of management is just keep the infection numbers low second is I, I can imagine some amount of behavior change you know in the past if you woke up one morning and you had a fever or let's say you didn't even not a fever but let's say a runny nose cold sore throat and a cough you often still went to the office That kind of stuff is going to start changing. Uh, People almost never wore masks. I think you'll see more mask wearing. All of that will keep the virus levels down. And then what I'm hoping is that we're going to have investments in more therapeutics. Because the one place that we have not done as well as I was hoping we might is the development of more treatments. And if that moves forward, we will find ourselves with a virus that pops up every once in a while is largely preventable most of us are vaccinated and even if you're unlucky enough to get infected and sick that there are reasonably good treatments that people don't die from this if all of that happens then it becomes a risk that we just manage in our lives and go about our daily business
0: well let's talk about treatments and the vaccine because as you pointed out earlier one of the success stories in what has been a grim year the cooperation of the federal government first by the Trump administration and now by the Biden administration and pharmaceutical companies like Johnson & Johnson, Moderna, and Pfizer. Can you apply that for future not only pandemics, but other health issues, other cures in medicine?
1: Absolutely. I actually am very hopeful that this will become a model. You know, before the pandemic, we were having these fights about, you know, about the pharmaceutical industry, and pricing, and, and innovation, and and obviously, um, some of those fights will come back, because uh, the, the underlying issues of high drug costs remain with us, that hasn't gone away. But I'm hoping that, that the last year is a model for how we tackle a lot of different things, that, that more active public-private partnership means uh, the government puts up more capital up front and de-risks many things, but then in return demands uh, that that, uh, the treatments, diagnostics, vaccines, target conditions that are really important to the population and are made available for people in a way that they can afford. Uh, That as a model for how to do it, is very powerful. I, I think it'll get applied not just to other infectious diseases, but other clinical conditions. It, you know, It won't be the, necessarily the only way we work, but that is one of the ways that we address uh, certain conditions that have been neglected that may be clinically more important, but, but where uh, a lot of investments are needed to make progress. I'm hoping that we're going to see those kinds of partnerships come about.
0: I want to come back to some of these issues, but remind our audience that we're talking with Dr. Ajish Jha. He is a member of the National Academy of Medicine. The Boston Globe described you as one of the best-known public health experts in the world. In Fortune magazine last year, ranking you as one of the world's 50 greatest leaders. You have really become the face of COVID-19 on so many interviews, broadcast and cable. We certainly appreciate your time here on C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio. But how has this evolved your own personal life? Because you have explained COVID-19 to so many people on so many different levels.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, on a personal level, I mean, one of the things I try to do is um, really think about how... Uh, I, as a, you know, as a dad, as a husband, um, as a son, have uh, tried to give advice to my family, to close family and friends, and really try to think about the advice I give to them uh, as the model for how I try to communicate more broadly to to the American people. You know, whenever I talk about, you know, vaccines. I start with, well, would I take the vaccine? Well, yes, I would. And why? And I think about that and then I explain it. So uh, so my personal and, and professional in some ways have gotten intertwined in this, right? Because I've also lived through the pandemic as everybody else has been. Uh, obviously, uh, uh, it's been a challenge for my family, but the truth of this pandemic um, but the truth is, most people in America have had really, really difficult years. I feel very privileged that uh, I've been able to get through it. I've had a stable job. I did switch jobs in the middle of the pandemic, but, um, but that was pre-planned, And, uh, and, and it's, been a, it's been a difficult year for all of us. But I feel very, very grateful that my immediate family, everybody around me, has thankfully not gotten sick and has gotten through the last year.
0: And the arc of your life, born in India, moved to Canada with your family, graduate of Columbia University and Harvard Medical School. Just touch on that briefly, if you would.
1: Sure. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's the classic American story, right? Like, this is something that... Um, I've been deeply grateful to my country, to this country. For is, I came uh, to the U.S. as when I was 13, almost 14, as a, and you know, as as a son of, of you know, pretty kind of lower middle class uh, immigrant parents, right? We, my parents weren't wealthy. We had uh, we struggled financially in ways that lots of immigrant kids do, and I always had this. Uh, mental model that if I worked hard, if I played by the rules, um, that this country would afford me a lot of opportunities. And the truth is, it doesn't for everybody, but it has for me. And I am deeply grateful for that. And uh, and to then be able to play a helpful role in in the moment of, of real crisis for our country, uh, that just feels like a privilege of a lifetime. So it's been a uh, it's been it's been an extraordinary ride already, and not done yet. I think we have all hopefully lots more to to do. But um, I am I, I, every day. I just feel this incredible sense of gratitude for being an American, for being here, and for having the the opportunity to to serve.
0: A crisis, but is it also an opportunity in terms of how you teach public health at Brown University? Are you changing the way you're thinking the approach to students and faculty?
1: You know, if we didn't. Uh, it would be, it would be a huge loss. It, it, absolutely, I mean, absolutely. Steve, look, the, the biggest health crisis of a century. It's got to change everything. It is going to change almost everything in our society. It's got to change almost everything about public health and how we think about public health. There is so much that we have learned. I have learned in this pandemic. Um, the interest in public health has exploded. Um, we our number of applicants to the Brown School of Public Health more than doubled from last year, um, and, but the interest is really global. So we have all sorts of interesting questions in front of us, like how do we educate not just people who are in Providence, Rhode Island, but how do we educate the world? What is our moral obligation to do that? Um, How do we use this pandemic as a way into understanding epidemiology and biostatistics, but also behavior and policy and all the stuff we used to teach in abstract ways? Well, they don't feel so abstract anymore, right? They feel very real and people understand it. So I think we have a lot of work to do to think about What does public health education and research look like in a post-pandemic world? And let's be clear, we're still in the middle of the pandemic, so we're not quite done with that. But it will absolutely transform everything. If, If the Brown School of Public Health looks five years from now the way it did five years ago, we will have failed. And I am sure it will not.
0: But I'm curious, do you worry that Americans may let down their guard, that we may go back to a new normal and potentially, and maybe this is an overstatement, that we could see another situation to what we are seeing right now in India?
1: I guess I, I, I always worry a little bit about complacency because that's part of human nature, right? You get through a crisis, you're like, oh boy, thank God that's over. Um, but this was such a transformative event. I mean, it, 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 it's going to be... The, the scars from this past year are going to be with us for many, many, many years. And, you know, it, it just was such a collectively awful, awful year that I do not see... I mean, we'll fight about, you know, specific things as we always do in our country, but I think the idea that the nation will, you know, in two, three years just say, ah... Thank God that's over. Let's go back to completely ignoring. I, it's, too, it's hard for me to get there. I, I think this is a pretty transformative thing. Uh, there's a huge window of opportunity here for doing things better, being better prepared. And I'm hopeful that we will take that opportunity and get our country better prepared for future crises like this.
0: And finally, you touched on this a moment ago, but what are your leading questions? What are the unknowns that you want to figure out as a public health expert
1: around this pandemic?
0: around the pandemic but also around the virus and the treatments and the vaccines and the
1: public health issues yeah i mean so let's just think very focused on this pandemic uh, the single biggest question in front of us is how do we produce billions of doses of these vaccines these are remarkable vaccines uh, in very short order. This is not a simple, like, oh, let's waive intellectual property rights. Sure, maybe that that might help. Um, but the real issues here are very complex issues of manufacturing and supply chains. And we have got to try to figure out how to solve that. That, to me, remains one of the big questions in front of us. There's a lot about this virus that we still don't understand. We don't understand why Uh, It has behaved in ways that it has at times. Uh, The virus started declining in dramatic ways in January, well before a lot of uh, vaccines had even been delivered and and into people's arms. Uh, We don't really understand what happened in India in the months leading up to this wave. I think all of us remain worried about more variants and what they will do to our vaccines. So there are a lot of challenges and questions in front of us. And ultimately beyond this pandemic, the biggest question that I worry about, actually two, one is on a scientific basis, um, what's next and how do we prepare our world for building vaccines and therapeutics for a virus that we may have never heard of before? And what what's, does that scientific enterprise need to look like? And then the second is how do we maintain social cohesion? One of the things that really hurt us as a country was the way we were divided on this pandemic. And we need to be able to fight pandemics in a much more united way than we did. So there is some real work ahead of us to be able to come together as a country country fighting these things and not fighting each other Th- those are those are long term challenges that we've got to grapple with
0: And one very quick aside because you mentioned the issue of masks and of course if you travel to asia that's the norm that's been the norm for many many years do you think that that will be the new norm here in this country we'll see more americans wearing them just out of precaution
1: yeah, you know, it's interesting. I think about the first time I went to Hong Kong, I remember walking around the streets of Hong Kong. It was a normal, sunny, nice day, and maybe 10% of people were wearing masks. And I remember thinking, wow, this is really odd. Uh, I'm not going to think that's odd in the future. So, do I think everybody will be wearing masks all the time? Of course not. Do I? Can I envision that uh, during certain seasons of the year, certain times of the year, five, ten, twenty percent of people may be wearing masks outdoors and indoors? Absolutely, and that's fine. And it probably will leave us a little bit better off. And uh, and I think it'll just become a part of what we do. And and uh, and and I don't. I see no problems with it. In fact, it may be good for us.
0: Dr. Ajish Jha, the Dean of the School of Public Health at Brown University, thank you very much for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: And be sure to listen and follow C-SPAN's The Weekly, wherever you get your favorite podcast. All of our coverage is available online anytime at cspan.org. And you can follow us on Twitter at C-SPAN Radio. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. We thank you for listening.